Okay, good morning everybody. Everyone have a copy? Yeah? Okay, our weekly uh, dose of Emuna. Again, the premise of our getting together on Wednesday mornings is not that we're necessarily conquering the philosophical dilemmas and challenges of faith, but by simply talking about faith, Emuna is like a muscle. If you exercise it, it grows, and if you don't, it atrophies and it dies. And hopefully by talking about it on Wednesdays, it carries throughout the week. So let's get to, we were supposed to get to this piece last week. We never even started it. Let's go right to the text, because if I start talking, then we won't get to it again. This comes from uh, Rav Shlomo Volbi's Ali Shur. Again, Rav Volbi was the mashkiach of uh, Yerushalayim, known as the great spiritual guide uh, of the Jewish people. Um, he has a fascinating life story himself. He was a very sophisticated individual with a, a advanced uh, secular degrees and from a very open background himself about tshuva and emerged a, a true leader in the area of Torah, but particularly in the area of Musar and character growth. And there's two volumes, there's numerous volumes that have come out of his teachings, but two volumes he published in his lifetime that represented his groups, what they called the Vadim, when a group got together to work on something, a Musar Vad. And each week they would get together, they would work on a certain character trait, study it, work on it, and come back the next week, talk about how it went. So, uh, so his two volumes are called Ale Shore. So this is from the first volume. He has a number of chapters on Emuna. We studied one of them. And this is the uh, chapter on Chinuch Emuna, How to educate towards Emuna. If we approach the issue to understand, how can we educate? How do we habituate ourselves towards living a life of faith till we see Hashem in our lives? Yadrich osanu harambam. The Rambam can be our guide. Hakosav b'perish ha-mishnai is the Rambam, Maimonides writes in his commentary on the Mishnah, his earliest writings, what the Rambam completed when he was a very young man. The Rambam, in his commentary on the Mishnah, on Pirkei writes the following. Omar, hakina v'hataiva v'avas hakavod right, The Rambam didn't write that. That's the actual Mishnah in Pirkei The Mishnah in Avos says that there are three character traits, three behaviors, which remove a person from the world. And what are they? If we are consumed by jealousy... If we are consumed by tava, taiva, which is lust, desire, temptation, and the third is kavod, is honor. A person whose life has those three attributes, a person who is consumed or distracted or driven by jealousy, by temptation, and by honor, removes himself from the world. Before we even see the Rambam's comment, I'll just tell you a beautiful insight of the Slana Rebbe, because it really is apropos of the Parshios that we're reading. He says, if you, it's not a coincidence. If you look at the history of the world, what happens? Post-Garden of Eden. Once Adam and Chava are expelled from the garden, what are the first three stories we have of, of man? Generic man. I'm talking to a group of women. What are the first three stories that we have? Post-Garden. Right. <clears throat> the first story we have is that of Cain and Hevel. What happens with Cain and Hevel? Jealousy and murder. They each offer a sacrifice. Hevel's is accepted. Cain's is rejected. Cain is... Swells, consumed by a sense of jealousy. It's not right. My, my sacrifice is just as good. It's just as sincere. He's just as creative. Why is his accepted and mine's not? And what happens? What's the result of that jealousy? <clears throat> it results in the very first act of murder. The very first act of murder. It's actually interesting. The commentaries discuss, how did Cain know that you weren't allowed to murder? Why is he held accountable for murdering his brother? Nowhere did God say to him, you're not allowed to murder. And our commentaries understand that there are certain behaviors that you should intuit. You don't need to be told. 
it's sikhli, it's something which is rational. There's a social contract. One should intuit the fact that you don't extinguish another life. So Cain is held accountable, and this first precedent act of murder <clears throat> is the result of a sense of jealousy. What happens next? What happens next? Next story in the Torah. Not a trick question. Cain kills Elul. The next story in the Torah is the flood. And why did God bring a flood that wipes out the world? He presses a reboot on the system of the world. Why a hard restart? Why? What were the people behaving? How were they behaving? What was guiding them? What was driving them? A sense of taifa. Lust. They were not respecting boundaries. They weren't respecting financial boundaries. They were stealing. In fact, we know what was the behavior. It was called the world was filled with Hamas. Hamas. Hamas, which is not a coincidence. We have to believe. Hamas is anarchy, chaos, a disregard for boundaries, for appropriateness, for ethics, for morals. People were stealing from one another. They were raping each other's wives. There was no respect for boundaries. The temptation, the desire, overcame moral boundaries. And what's the result? God says, no, that's, this is not, mm, not why I created the world. Reboot. And then the next story in the Torah? <clears throat> the people say, why is everybody worshipping this guy? We can build a tower. We can just, just as high. We can pierce the heavens. We'll make a name for ourselves. We can be up there. And what does God say? No, you can't come close to me. I'm going to disperse you. United Nations. It's a great punishment for all mankind. I'm going to disperse you. I'm going to give you separate languages. I'm going to create distinct nations. I'm going to disperse and spread you. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it, that our Torah, unlike many, many religions, does not begin with stories of greatness of man and worship of God and perfection of prophets. Our Torah begins with these terribly disheartening stories. Cain kills Havel. They have to wipe out, God has to wipe out the world because of desire, and then they want to make a name for themselves, and God has to disperse them. What are the three character traits? How did our rabbis know to come in Pirkeavos and say that there are three things that remove you from the world? Kina, Tava, and Kavod. How'd they know that? They opened the Chumash. All they did is study the Parsha. And they see the very first three stories in the Torah are Cain and Havel is a story of jealousy. The generation of the flood is a story of lust and temptation, Taiva. And the story of the Tower of Bavel is a story of Kavod, of wanting to earn a name. All three ended very badly. So the rabbis understood that these things undermine life. Now what does it mean? <clears throat> it removes you from the world. What does it mean, the world? Disconnects you from God. So one interpretation is it disconnects you from God. You're disconnected from your Creator. There's not enough room in this world. If you have jealousy or lust or seek honor, there's not enough room for you and God. What else could it mean? It removes you from the world. Min ha'olam. Yeah. Maybe uh, disconnects you from other people. Good. So it means it disconnects you from other people. You can't have real relationships if you're jealous. Nobody wants to be around somebody who's constantly jealous and envious you don't want to be around because the person is judging you and looking at you and they're jealous of you and they're challenging you. You can't have relationships that are filled with temptation. If you are overwhelmed by desire, you want what I had, how can we have a relationship? And if you seek honor, all you care about is your name, your arrogant, even inflated ego. So you're removed from the world. You're operating, you think you're in the world, 
But you're in a parallel universe to everybody else. You're in wor- your world and everybody else is in their world trying to get away from you. So it removes you from the world. If you want to be ma'uravim abrios, if you want to be pleasantly intermingled with people, you want to have a, a, a wonderful social life, so you have to work on the antithesis of these three qualities. You can't have jealousy, lust, and honor. What else? A third interpretation. What could it mean, min ha'olam? Yeah. Life in the world to come? It could mean life in the world to come. You're not going to earn the merits to achieve eternal life. But I've always liked to understand this as min ha'olam means from your world. Mm. From the world of sanity, of mental health, of emotional health. From the world of... If your life is consumed by looking around with jealousy and envy, if your life is filled with desire and temptation that you can't be disciplined to control, if your life is filled with your ego and your need for honor, then you are living life in pain perpetually. You're numb. You're hollow. You're removed from this world. You're a shell of who you could be. You're shallow. You, you're not, you're, you've been removed from your world. You don't appreciate what you're, you're going to be on antidepressant meds, and you're going to get blood pressure, diabetes, whatever problems, and you're going to have emotional dis- family dysfunction, and you're going to have. You are removed from your world. You cannot have peace and serenity and tranquility, happiness, joy, fulfillment, if you're living a life defined by jealousy, lust, and honor. So our rabbis look at the first three stories of the Torah and they say, no. Those first three stories end badly. So clearly the behavior of those first three stories are behavior that remove us from the world. In great contrast, what comes next? What happens after that? We are introduced to somebody whose behavior is the very antithesis of this. Avram Avinu. God looks down and he sees Avram. And Avram is not filled with jealousy, lust, and honor. His tent is open on four sides. He is generous and magnanimous. He is gracious. He is hospitable. God says he gets it. Nobody else gets it. He gets it. So you know what? The Torah that I had intended to give the entire world, which is what our rabbis tell us, that originally God intended on giving the Torah to everybody. I don't know if you want to view the whole world would be Jewish or no one would be Jewish, but everybody would have the Torah equally. And God says, no, they're not worthy. They are living a self-centered life. I'm giving my Torah to people who have the capacity for selflessness. Avram has it. So therefore, I'm going to ask him and his children after him to model for the world what I wanted it to be. And so Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, what are their three character traits? Our rabbis look in the Torah and they see Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov get it. And they transform the world. And they build the world. And what are their three character traits that the rabbis understand? These are the three things that don't remove you from the world, but they, they are three things that are the foundation of the world. What was the second mission of Perki Avos? Al Torah... Uh, what's, the, uh, what's the second Mishnah? See, you're ready to teach next week. The world exists. The world exists on three things. What are they? Torah, Avodah, Gmilas Chasadim. Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov. Avram is Gmilas Chasadim. Yaakov is Torah. Yitzchak is Avodah. Yitzchak was willing to be a sacrifice. He was Avodah. It's the inverse. Three things remove you from the world. Those are the first three stories of the Torah. Three things are the foundation of a healthy, serene, tranquil, meaningful, fulfilling life. Torah, Vodik, Milas, Chasadim, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. That's the history of the Jewish people, the history of the world in a nutshell. That's how it began. God changes course. He says to Avram, so by the way, did God choose Avram or did Avram choose God? 
We are not the chosen people, we are the choosing people. Avram chose God, so God says, you made the right choice, you're living the life that I intended for everyone, I want you to be the role model. I say this to every conversation with a potential convert, with a convert conversion candidate. Judaism, Jewish people, we are no superior, we are not better implicitly. It just happens to be that our great-great-great-grandfather was in the honor society. He behaved in a certain way that he made it into the honor society, and God said to him, your children, your progeny after you are charged to continue this mission and be a model for the world. Anyone can join the honor society. How do you join the honor society in school? If you make the grade, and if your behavior is appropriate, you could be a member of the honor society. Anyone can join, but you have to be willing to make the grade, you have to have the right behavior. So anyone can become Jewish. You have to become Jewish, means though to take upon yourself the responsibility to live the life, to teach those values. How does Judaism teach those values? Because Judaism is a platform that teaches us how to relate to time, how to relate to space, how to relate to intimacy, how to relate to food, how to relate to everything. Judaism is the platform to teach the world how to be selfless, caring, gracious, and so on. The antithesis of the kinetai uncovered. Okay, I couldn't hold back because that's the Mishnah in Avos. What is the Rambam's comment on that Mishnah? V'hu ki hamidos o ba'achas mehen yafsid emunas the Rambam says, you know why these three character traits remove you from the world? Because you cannot be living those three behaviors and have a muna at the same time. If you're jealous, you don't have a muna. If you have desire and temptation and lust that you feed rather than control, then you can't have a muna. And if you're interested in honor, then you can't have a muna. Why? 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 How do these three things remove you from a muna? How is jealousy the antithesis of emuna? What? Exactly, because if you're jealous and you want what they have, then you don't really believe that what God has provided for you is what you need. That doesn't mean you're not entitled to strive for more. You could want more. You could want more in Ruchnius or in Gashmius. You could want more in terms of earning a greater income and having greater opportunity and enjoying more material pleasure. There's nothing wrong with wanting more. But do you want it because you want it or do you want it because he or she has it and you want to keep up with them and you want to have it in a sense of envy in lieu of them? If you're jealous, then you don't believe that you have what you need. You want what someone else has. And that's knocked God out of the equation. If you have lust and desire, then you're not fulfilling what God's vision is. You've knocked him out of the equation. And if you seek honor, if you have ego, well, there's no, no room for you and God in this world. Mivar HaRambam, third paragraph, the Rambam explains that these three character traits remove you from the world. What they remove you from, this is now a fourth interpretation, what they remove you from, says Ravolbi, is from the world of a relationship with God. A person's world is their emuna. The way you live your life and the way we are in, in, in the world is our amuna. Let's attempt to understand. Why is it specifically that if you're jealous, or tempted, or seek honor, then you can't have amuna? Then your life can be a nice life, but it's not a life filled with amuna. You know, the human being is made up with limited capacity. I once, I used to spend a lot of time in New Square when I was uh, single. Uh, New Square is a Hasidic uh, 
enclave outside of Munsi Square. And uh, a very insular community. There's one road in, one road out. Very, very insular community. Um, not free of its own controversy, but at the time it didn't have. And there's still so many redeeming things about it. And uh, so when I was in YU, and afterwards, my sister who worked at Camp Simcha had a camper who was from New Square. We met that family, and through that family, I was really attracted to, you know, part of my, my world view is uh, go experience diverse Jewish experiences and take the best of it all and enjoy it. So, you know, one of the things Yechavit and I had in common when we were dating is both in a year in Israel, we love to go to different places and experience the Karbach Moshav and a Hasidish and a Bnei Brak and a Gush and a, obviously within boundaries, but diverse experiences and take the best of it. So I had spent time, I went for I think three or four Simchas Torahs in a row to New Square. Um, eventually I brought nine of my friends so we would have a minion that could daven in the right zman. Um, but we had an amazing experience seeing the bleacher. Literally, they bring in ble- um, bleachers and they pack them. It's unbelievable. The dancing, the passion, the energy. Absolutely incredible. Incredible. And the, and the Rebbe, the Square Rebbe, is a really remarkable individual. Um, so I remember once asking one of the Hasidim, like, what's Pshat? What's the story with the, the, the Rebbe fasting? Why do you believe the Rebbe has this, this insight? He has this, you know, Hasidim believe that the Rebbe has, they're much more spiritually attuned. They understand the spiritual world. They can pick up the frequency. They can predict the future or they're at least, I don't want to call it, have a prophetic vision, but they, they can see with a greater vision. You come to the Rebbe for advice. What's the deal with that? So this Hasid explained to me, you know, every human being is not made up of infinite capacity. You have 100% capacity, call it. To the degree that you fill your capacity with material pursuit, physical pleasure, desire, temptation, that's what's the room that's left for spirituality. To the degree that you limit it, you have a lot more room left for spirituality. So if you indulge in the physical world, then there's less room left to feel spirituality. If you live a disciplined physical life, so there's a lot more room. So a Rebbe who eats in a very limited fashion, and takes many fasts upon himself, and doesn't operate in the world of physical pleasure, tries to transcend the physical world. So they will, the result will be, they'll be much more spiritually attuned. They'll pick up much greater spiritual frequencies. That was what, that was what he said. So that's what the Rambam, that's what Revolb is explaining the Rambam here. Taiva If you just can't give up the chocolate cake and the delicious food, you're thinking about food all the time. You're thinking about physical intimacy all the time. You're thinking about a bigger house and a nicer car and the latest clothing and the newest pocketbook and the new shoes and the latest gadget. All the cheftei aguf. You are consumed by desire to have the latest, have more, have the greatest, have the nicest brand. If you are consumed by the desire for the pleasures of the flesh, that is in direct contrast. It's in direct conflict with wanting to live in a spiritual world. Now, we don't believe in asceticism. The Nazir, the person who takes a Nazarite vow, is called a chote. They're a sinner. Because we don't believe that you become holy by removing yourself from the physical world. We enjoy. In fact, holiness is in the physical world. Enjoy. Eat the greatest delicacies. Make sure they're kosher. Make a bracha before and after. Intimacy. Enjoy the greatest physical pleasures with the right person, in the right context, in the right time, in the right setting, with the right holiness, with the right thoughts. We don't believe, like other religions, that you remove yourself from physical pleasure to become holy. We believe you interact with the physical world, but you elevate it, you distinguish it to become holy. So the degree to which a person is driven by desire and temptation, and the desire and the temptation pushes them to engage these things not in the appropriate context and way, 
but to indulge, so then that will dull your sensitivity or your ability to be spiritual. This is from Chobos Halavavos, Rav, uh, Rabbeinu Bachia, who says that the purpose of Torah, the entire Torah is designed to reinforce and promote our ability for our intelligence to rule our desire. You see, we live in two simultaneous worlds at the same time. On the one hand, we're animals. We have an animal instinct and an animal impulse and an animal desire. We're animals. And we use that language in our vernacular. We talk about somebody who is eating like a pig. The room is a pigsty. You're acting like an animal. What does it mean to act like an animal? We all have a lot in common with animals. And animals have no self-awareness. Animals have no moral compass. Animals have no... Animals are defined by impulse and instinct. They eat what they want, where they want, regardless of who owns it or whether they've asked permission. They relieve themselves where they want, when they want, regardless of dignity or modesty. They um, interact with other animals in your backyard in front of people. They don't take the other animal for dinner first or buy a drink or you know, uh, send a love note. They just do what they want. Animals have impulse and have instinct. And on the one hand, we're all animals. That little voice in your head that says, eat the chocolate cake. Nobody cares. It's good. Just eat it. Indulge. You deserve it. That's the animal impulse. We also have a tzalem alokim. We have a godly spirit and a godly soul. Where God breathed life into us and said, you can control that animal. You have the ability to control it. This is what all of Tanya is about. This is what all of, all of Machshava, all of the whole Jewish world of thought is. That we live life is a battleground. Every moment of every day is a battleground. When you're hungry and you're going to reach for that food you shouldn't eat, look at the thing you shouldn't look at, say the thing you shouldn't say, listen to the thing you shouldn't listen at. Don't say what you shouldn't say. That all of life is a battleground in that war between the animal impulse inside us and the godly spirit that says, no, you can be disciplined. What does it mean to be godly? God is the ultimate in discipline. God is the epitome. God doesn't deal with temptation. God doesn't hesitate or equivocate. God is the ultimate of being, of being disciplined. So the world, life, is that battleground. And the Torah is designed to keep us mindful. You're about to battle with food. Here's how I'm going to keep you mindful for you to win. You have to ask, is it kosher? You're going to make a bracha. You're going to take a deep breath and say, before I eat it, I'm going to remember where it came from. I'm going to be grateful for this gift of the food. And in every area of life, that's what Torah is designed to do. If you believe in Torah, you believe in the world of spirituality. You believe in the notion that, as we've spoken about many times, we don't have a soul, we are a soul. It's not that we are a body that has a soul, we are a soul that has a body. It's a, a tremendous difference. We make the mistake of educating our children that we are a body and we have a soul. But that's a mistake. We are a soul and we have a body. So what it, part of emuna is not just belief in God, but it's belief that God is in you. It's not only belief that there is a first cause, a creator of the universe who interacts with us, but it's a belief not just in God, but God is in us. There's a tzelem alokim in us. It's a belief in our soul. It's a belief in our capacity for spirituality. Habori is baruchu etzem ruchni, there comes a day where you don't believe with a leap of faith, you know you have a soul. You experience something which is so gratifying. 
so meaningful, so fulfilling. By the way, it usually is never anything which is selfish. You never get a new car and go, wow, my soul is on fire. <laughs> you don't buy a new pocketbook and say, wow, this is the most spiritual moment I've had in a long time. When do you feel it? When you volunteer, when you give, when you do something extraordinary for someone else. When do you feel it? When you see something remarkable. You witness a sunset or you see something, the Grand Canyon. When do you feel it? When something that was too coincidental happened in your favor and you can't believe it worked out that way. In those moments, you know that you aren't a body that has a soul. You are a soul that happens to have a body. Emuna is not just in God. Emuna is in our own soul, in our own spiritual existence. As long as you've not come to that conclusion, you don't really believe you have a soul. You don't know how to nourish it. You don't know how to feed it. You don't know how to protect it. So until you know it, you have to take the leap of faith and believe it. The desire to be overcome with temptation and desire and lust for the physical pleasures of the world is in direct contradiction and conflict with nurturing your soul. We do a lot to nurture our body. We pamper our body. We pamper our body. Right? I'm talking to a group of women. I'm just going to clear on the recording here that I'm talking to a group of women. But maybe you get manicures and pedicures and facials and your hair done. We take baths and long shower. We buy clothing and makeup, massages. And we do a lot. That doesn't even include the meals that we eat, the home we live in, and the car we drive. We do much to pamper our body. But what do we do to nourish our soul? What do we do to nurture our soul? What do we do to exercise our soul? What do we do to work out our soul? Okay, good. You come here. Excellent. That was good. 100%. You do. Every time you're involved in learning, every time you open the sitter, and every time, here's where it's counterintuitive, not only acts that we would think of spiritual, of course, davening and learning are spiritual acts, but every time you volunteer, every time there's a text message that says, can someone make a meal for so-and-so, and you say yes, you've nurtured your soul. Every time you hold the door for someone, every time you walk by, you pick up a piece of garbage, every time you think of someone who might be eating alone and you invite them over, you're nurturing your soul. So the degree to which you are driven by lust for the body, it it removes you from nurturing your soul. It leaves little energy and room left for nurturing the soul. Again, nothing wrong with a mani-pedi. Go enjoy it. But it can't be what defines you. It can't be what defines you it shouldn't be what you lust after. You should have a nice manicure pedicure so when you're hosting all that company on Shabbos, you can be the best host as you can be. Not because you are driven by the superficial and the physical. You know, I, I don't want to get too uh, distracted because we're running out of time. And we barely got through this. But this is what... We spoke about this on Shabbos Shuvah a few weeks ago. Yeah, it is always the case. This is a perpetual problem I have. So, but you know when we learn this? Unfortunately, we learn this when it's too late. When the soul is extracted from the body, the soul hovers over the body until burial, and the soul experiences pain and confusion. The Talmud tells us that the righteous, Yitzhiyas Hanashama, the extraction of the soul, is a moment of ecstasy. It's bliss. It's pleasurable. Rav Nachman of Breslov said, I can't wait to take off the garment that is my body. I have to wear a, a stink in a suit and tie every day. It's miserable. 
I'm so jealous of the doctors who walk around in their scrubs all day. I, I was the other day with a doctor. He's wearing scrubs. It was a Sunday. I said, you're on call today? He said, no. Just, he has, he's a doctor, so you can wear that and get away with it. He's wearing his pajamas. You're a doctor, you get to wear your pajamas in public. It's a great thing. So, right? So actually, Hanaf once said to me, he said, the worst part about scrubs is when you come home, there's nothing more comfortable to change into. Right? So when you wear a suit and tie all day, you can't wait to take it off. It's choking you. It's restricting you. It's torturous to you. So for Rav Nachman of Breslov, the body was, was torturous to him, to his soul. The body made the soul feel restricted and made it feel tempted and gave it all kinds of challenges and struggles. Rav Nachman couldn't wait to undress from the body and just be a soul. For the righteous... Yitzhiya Sanashama, the extraction of the soul is a moment of bliss. But for the less than righteous, which I would include myself, I won't speak for others, for the less than righteous, the extraction of the soul from the body is a moment of confusion and pain. You know why? Because now the soul is hovering over, looking down at that lifeless body. And the soul says to itself, one second, I thought that was me. I spent 80 years, 90, 100 years treating that body as if that was me. That's where I directed my money. That's how I spent my time. That's when I looked into the mirror. I thought, that was me. You're telling me that there's a me independent of that? You're telling me that the everlasting, immortal, eternal me doesn't even include that? And that I ignored taking care of what will be the me forever because I was so busy pampering the me that's now gone and will become worm food? And it takes the soul time to grow comfortable with that. And the only time the soul actually, we believe, hovers over the body until the burial. And once the soul sees the body in the ground, now the soul can feel comfortable to rise to heaven. Some say shiva, shlosh, shemayir. I know there's a lot of different interpretations. But the soul has to grow comfortable with itself knowing it is an entity without the body. So unfortunately, we'll all learn the hard way at the end of life. The degree to which we understand that we are a soul that has a body when the soul is extracted from the body, like the tzaddik, it's a moment of, it's in the shika. It's a kiss of death. It's a moment of joy, of bliss. Like Rav Nachman, we get to finally disrobe from the body. But to the degree to which we think the body, who we are, is what we see in the mirror, what we pamper, what we indulge, then that's going to be painful. So we have our lives to develop that relationship and determine who we are. Are we a body that has a soul? Are we a soul that has a body that will determine what we experience at, at the moment of death. So, the she'ifa l'chefzeh ha'guf. Nothing wrong with enjoying that. I want to be absolutely clear. Enjoy the pleasures of this world. Manicure, pedicure, a great meal, delicacies, delicious food, intimacy. Enjoy the pleasures of the world. But do you enjoy them as a soul that has a body enjoying them? Or do you enjoy them because you think you are a body and you're still not even sure you have a soul? The attitude is what determines whether there's anything room left for spirituality. So, Emuna is not just about believing in Hashem. Emuna is about believing that we have a soul. We are on the one, two, three, four, fifth paragraph. Hamashis hashifas chayav al kinas ishmer ehu. So sing the fun of a saderach laakaras haashgacha. If you live life with jealousy, you have sealed off your ability to see God's involvement in your life. Hamamid ve'emuna shleima kiboro asolo kotzarcho. A person who believes wholeheartedly that while I may want more and I'm working towards more, by definition I have what I need. Because if I needed more, God would give it. If you believe that you have what you need, even if you want more and you're striving to get more, 
then you can't have jealousy. There's nothing wrong with, again, there's nothing wrong with working towards more, but more because you're working towards it, not because you're jealous of another. If you're driven by jealousy, you can't have emuna. You cannot, you're, you're knocking God out of the equation. Hamevenu makir, a person who recognizes and understands, ki olam azehu olam avoda, that this world is the place of work and toil and effort. And that the world of pleasure and the world of reward is in the world to come. So honor should do nothing for you. If, you. if we really understand that there is a God, He's infinite, we're finite. If we understand that we are a speck, speck in the canvas of human history. This past Shabbat we talked about the statistics. The billions of people on the globe at any time, the billions of people that have lived on earth throughout all time, we are a nothing of a nothing. That we just have a task, we have a mission, we should keep our eye on the ball of what we contribute to the world, but we should never ever think that we are deserving of honor or pursue honor. The Rush, Rabbeinu Asher, and the Sefer Orchus Chaim says the following. Be afraid and be careful not to receive your reward in this world. And Rabbeinu Yonah expands on this. When you're in shul, do not talk about mundane things, even between the aliyahs of, of Torah reading. Says the rush, if someone sits down next to you and starts talking to you about, did you hear the sale at Bloomies? Did you hear what so and so sold their house for? Do you believe, well, you know, can you believe they never invited me back for lunch? Start moving your lips as if you're davening. Fake it. So they'll leave you alone. And don't say, listen to Rabbeinu Yonah's advice. Don't turn to them with righteous indignation and say, Excuse me, do you know who I am? I don't talk in shul. Says Rabbeinu, you know why? Because you're just feeding your ego. If your goal is for them not to talk to you, start moving your lips as if you're faking davening. The moment you talk to them with righteous indignation, you know, it's really not proper to talk in shul. You know, I'm not one of the people who talk. You're feeding your ego. And you might think, you even think it's a mitzvah to feed your ego. Because you've, you've turned it into something which is noble. It's a teachable moment. I'm teaching them. But says Rabbeinu Yonah, at that moment, you're really feeding your ego. And you know what happens when you feed your ego? You get your reward, your reward in this world. Is that worth it? You want that? That moment that you feel good about yourself, that you don't talk in shul and you're better than that person? That little, that little, um, whatever you gave your ego, that was worth it? Ilazos, boost, thank you. If you pursue honor, you don't believe in olam haba. You don't believe that there's reward waiting for you. You're willing to cash it out now. You're taking the lump sum payout and you're forfeiting. You're leaving so much on the table in the world to come. Is that an example of What's an example of going after? Was that an example? Yes. Yes. Isn't that startling? Yeah. Right? You would think that's the right thing to do. Educate. Inspire. Tell the person next to you. We, you know, we really shouldn't talk. Tell me later. And that, that's what, he, what Rabbi Volbi is saying is, listen to the Rabbeinu Yonah. Such a simple encounter that had no malice, and yet it too is feeding your ego. You needed people to know that you don't talk in shul. 
And every time you do something to feed your ego, every time you seek honor or pursue honor, you're cashing out your reward in the world to come, which is a lack of emuna. It shows a, a, a lack of faith in the world to come. So what do you say, says Revolvi? A person who is living a proper world of faith, where they have faith, not only in God, but they have faith in all the spiritual aspects of life. They recognize God's involvement in their life. And therefore, they're not jealous of others. And they recognize, they believe in the world to come, so they're not looking to cash out in this world. If you're jealous, you don't think God's giving you what you need, you don't believe in God. You seek honor, you don't believe in the world to come, you're trying to compete with God for your name. And you have taiva, if you can't control your desire, you're indulging in this world, you're not nourishing your soul. So therefore, what's the way that we educate ourselves for emuna? It's a great formula. Says Ravolvi, based on the Rambam, you know how you work on emuna? You work on emuna by working on not having jealousy, lust, or seeking honor. The way to make space, the way to make room for emuna, is to get rid of those three behaviors. Um... I think we're going to stop here. We're out of time. Either we'll pick up with this next time or we'll do another piece, but we got the, the general gist of it. Is that Amuna is not just belief in God, but it's belief in the world of spirituality with its consequences. That God takes care of us, we don't have to be jealous. That there's a world to come, I don't have to get my payment in this world. That, bless you. That I have a soul that needs to be nurtured, I shouldn't always be exclusively focused on pampering my body. That Amuna leads to all these other conclusions in life that we need to pursue as well. Have an Amuna-filled day. Amen.